I'm Chris Motes, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we explore those principles and cultivate those virtues that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. Well, folks, we are on Legislative Day 26 of the South Dakota Legislative Session. We are approaching very rapidly what is called Crossover Day. That is a big event in the state capitol. That's when all the bills that start in either the Senate or the House, if they've started in one chamber, they got to cross over to the other by Crossover Day. That's on Thursday. So we've got a big deadline up tomorrow on Wednesday. There, I think our legislators are going to be working late, and uh, and your Catholic Conference is going to be working hard to represent uh, you and 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 those those virtues and principles that we know are so so important uh, to to the life of our our state. Today, I want to um, kind of talk a little bit about some of the bills that have been going on, but. Um, I'm welcoming a special guest today, Katie Glenn. Katie uh, is a government relations counsel, if I got that right, at Americans United for Life. Uh, yes, Americans United for Life, forgive me. Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, K- Katie, we've been, um, we've been communicating and you've been helping with a bill, House Bill, uh, House bill 1247. It's being called the Medical Conscience Protection Act, a really, really important bill, a main priority for the South Dakota Catholic Conference this year. Um, and so, folks, if you're interested in this bill, hold on, because we're going we're gonna to get to it towards the end of our conversation. Um, but on our way there, I just thought it would be great to talk a little bit about uh, Americans United for Life a great, great organization. So maybe let's start there, Katie, just a little bit about who you are and, uh, and what AUL is. Sure. So Americans United for Life um, is a law and policy org that's exclusively focused on pro-life issues for the whole life. Uh, we're really excited because this is our 50-year anniversary. AUL was founded in 1971, two years before Roe v. Wade in Chicago. They worked on one of the original um, abortion cases in Illinois. And um, we've been in Washington for about 15 years, although I am now based in Tampa, Florida, because my, uh, my role is primarily to work with state lawmakers. So as you know, I was able to uh, Skype into the South Dakota legislature from Florida yesterday, which was great. Well, it was great to have your have your testimony. Um, it's something too that I just learned recently that the history of AUL, Americans United for Life, going all the way back to even pre Roe versus Wade. But something I learned the other day was that Americans United for Life submitted an amicus brief in that very important case. Um, I think it was written by a very well known uh, Catholic lawyer and former Notre Dame law professor, Professor what is it, Charles Rice. Did I get remember his name correctly? You, does this ring a bell? I want to go read the brief because I've read okay. his work before. He's kind of, fa- I mean, he's famous in the pro-life uh, academic world um, mm-hmm. as, and, and also like a big natural law scholar. So I thought that was kind of cool to see the other day. I uh, just, that, that great connection to uh, our ladies university there at, at Notre Dame. But yeah, you know, uh, AUL lawyers, we've actually filed um, an amicus brief or the, the merits brief in every pro-life case before the Supreme Court since Roe v. Wade. Um, It's a very cool legacy to get to be a part of. And I've got a copy of all of those briefs in my office, um, a paper copy. But yeah, we're, um, you know, it's it's exciting to celebrate 50 years and look forward at the next 50 years. 
And certainly with AUL living most of its life in Chicago, lots of connections to Notre Dame. Yeah. So tell me um, kind of the, the history lo- located in Chicago there, but now in the last 15 years or so doing a lot of federal work too. Can you just give us an overview? Like what's the focus of your work um, at AUL? Obviously you're doing state stuff, but you've mentioned um, federal Supreme Court stuff too. Like what's the, wh- where do you focus? Yeah. So right now um, with the new administration, our big focus is on um, holding the line on longstanding bipartisan, broadly popular things like the Hyde Amendment, which is the federal prohibition on taxpayer funding for abortion. Um, It's opposing some of the worst uh, appointments of President Biden, such as California Attorney General Becerra, who has hearings later this week, um, and really just trying to make sure that everywhere we can, we can remind President Biden that when he was a senator, He drew on his Catholic faith a lot. When he ran for president in 2008, he said every abortion was a tragedy. Mm. And so we're trying to really remind him that this is what you used to believe as recently as 2019. And these are, this is the way that you should think about law and policy now that you are the president. Yeah, that's a, that's a great focus to have right now. It's so, so important, especially, you know, let's just be honest that it, it can be confusing for a lot of Catholics to have um, a, a, a Catholic president, you know, he's got this picture of himself and the Pope on his credenza behind his desk in the Oval Office. But at the same time, like, you know, just some of the, um, the both the promises he made on the campaign trail, but even some of the executive actions and and um, and promises he's made he's made in recent weeks, um, and maybe just that the Hyde Amendment. I think our listeners probably know, but just can you briefly explain, like, what is the Hyde Amendment and why is it important? Sure. So after Roe v. Wade, um, at that time, the Supreme Court basically cleared the slate. Uh, The host of state and federal laws that um, regulated abortion in different ways, whether it was funding or um, time limits, anything like that, was pretty much washed away. And there was Mm -hmm. tons of confusion. Um, But one thing that was known at that time was that broadly in Congress, there was this overwhelming belief that just because abortion is legal doesn't mean everyone should have to participate. And, and certainly everyone should not have to pay for it. And so um, Mr. Hyde uh, was a representative from Illinois, and he introduced the Hyde Amendment, which was um, a budget rider that prevented taxpayer money at the federal level from being spent on abortions. And the first time that this was put into law in the 1970s, over 100 Democrats supported it. It was broadly bipartisan. Um, it stood up in the Supreme Court in 1980, Um, AUL attorneys defended the law in the Supreme Court, and and it was held to be constitutional that, in fact, uh, Roe v. Wade does not require the state to pay for abortions, and the state can pass a law, the the federal government can pass a law prohibiting that funding. Yes. Um, And, you know, for the entire time that President Biden was in the Senate, for 40 years, he voted yes on this every single year. He voted to uphold it. It's only recently that um, the Hyde Amendment has come under attack. It's been seen as something that just goes into the budget every year. And now, like, I would say the last two and three years, we've really had to fight for it. So is there, I mean, mean, sometimes we see these headlines and like, oh, Hyde Amendment. Is this a real, real credible? I mean, have there been, um, when you say you've been fighting against it, I mean, this is, uh, I mean, it sounds like this is an urgent thing. 
Yeah, there, so there was a brief point of time um, under the Obama administration, just a couple of months, where hide protections were moved for re, were removed for the District of Columbia. Wow. And immediately, D.C. government started finding ways under uh, Medicaid to pay for abortions. Uh. And um, we know Dr. Michael New at uh, Catholic University has done a lot of great research on this. He's found that over 2 million lives have been saved um, by the Hyde Amendment. And that's because when women go to a family planning clinic, um, they receive health care that is um, government provided for low income families. Yeah. Um, abortions off the table. They're right. getting prenatal services. They're getting family support. But abortion is not there as one of their, quote, choices. Yeah. And so um, we think, we feel so strongly that the government should be in the business of supporting family formation, not family destruction. Amen. You know, I'm just so encouraged. That's, uh, I think that's so, so true that, you know, actually families are, are just bedrock to our society. And we, sometimes we hear these words and we get conditioned to them. We got to remember, like, abortion isn't health care. It's not health care. It's never health care to end a life. You know, one of the other things you mentioned, Katie, is we're kind of just talking about the federal scene is President Biden's nominee for Secretary of Health and Human Services, this man named Xavier Becerra. Explain, you know, why is this kind of a focus and a priority of uh, AUL's attention right now? Well, I think broadly, uh, the nominees that are being put forth, you know, are probably uh, pro-abortion or at least would say they're pro-choice. Um, but he is uniquely bad. Um, as Attorney General of California, he's targeted pregnancy centers. Um, he's supported and defended in court the law that um, would have basically rendered meaningless any messaging or communication from pregnancy care centers yeah. um, because it forced them to advertise that the state offers abortion in a so, whole bunch of languages. <laughs> and I just want to, I want to briefly here, because this was, I didn't even realize this was him at the time, but his name is in the case. It's Nifla V. Becerra. So that's folks, <laughs> yeah, so that's, this was a couple of years ago, but the state of California wanted to re require pro-life pregnancy centers to essentially provide referrals for abortions. They wanted to like force them to, and, um, you know, thank God the, the pro-life pregnancy center won in that case, but that's, that's kind of a bit of the, the history there. Right. He's also led other state attorneys general um, in pursuing the cases against the Little Sisters of the Poor, um, in challenging Title 10, which is a family planning program that Congress created uh, that is meant for pre-pregnancy family planning. But abortion uh, businesses have worms their way into it. They're trying to take money out of it. Planned Parenthood has been one yep. of the biggest recipients of Title 10 money under the Obama administration, even though they are not eligible under uh, what the actual law says. So the Trump administration tried to fix that and he uh, filed a lawsuit in California and supported other states doing so to challenge um, keeping pre-pregnancy funding out of abortion businesses. Um, you know, the list goes on. It seems like every time there is an opportunity for the government to take a swipe at pro-life groups or people of faith, uh, A.G. Becerra is right there in the middle of it. Well, and you mentioned the Little Sisters of the Poor, too. Do you want to maybe just take a minute and tell us what, what was happening with them and, and how A.G. Becerra was kind of involved? Sure. So under uh, the Affordable Care Act, which was, you know, Obamacare, the big health care law, um, one of the things it required was that um, employer health insurance cover contraception and um, abortifacients like Plan B. 
So, um, and not only was it required coverage, but it was required that it be quote free, that it was paid for. And so that went even a step further from saying, this is something offered in the plan, but it's something that if you avail yourself to it, we are the ones footing the bill. And, and so there are a lot of companies, um, in the private sector, like Hobby Lobby that said, you know, that violates our conscience. We cannot pay for that. We cannot provide it. But there are also uh, religious groups like the Little Sisters of the Poor, which if you don't know, um, it's a group of nuns that run nursing homes all over the world. I'm so lucky to uh, be able to volunteer with the home here in Washington, D.C. So it's a cause very near and dear to my heart. And they they take in um, the elderly poor, so people who couldn't necessarily afford a nursing home but need that level of care. Uh, That's their whole mission. Yeah. Uh, they are Catholic nuns. They have no interest in birth control. And yet they've now had to go to the Supreme Court over and over to defend their rights. And so it's really disheartening to see both um, Mr. Becerra from California and President Biden say, we're going to file this lawsuit again. You know, I guess they want to go 0 and 4 against nuns at the Supreme Court. But, you know, yeah. we just want these women to be able to live out their mission, especially during COVID when it's so needed. You know, and that to me, that's just kind of baffling that, you know, the even the principles aside, which are really, really, we're talking about basic human rights of conscience to not cooperate in something that you sincerely believe is is evil, is wrong. Um, that principle aside, like who wants to be against the little sisters of the poor? Like they're just, you know, even it's just like a, a, an, an image. It's just like they're they're amazing, amazing women, which is which, which makes it um, even more baffling. So um, what else at the, at the federal scene or do you want to transition to kind of state trends that you guys are seeing? Um, yeah, I mean, like we could talk about the Equality Act if you want to. Oh, That's coming up I did want to talk about that. Okay. that uh, <laughs> this is, um, I think, I've heard this described as the most pro-abortion legislation to pass the House of Representatives in a long, long time. Tell and us about the Equality Act. Yeah, tell us about the Equality Act. Yeah, so the Equality Act is a piece of legislation. It was introduced last Congress, passed the House. It was just reintroduced again. It's going to get a vote this week, it sounds like. Um, And what the front line of it is, it's these LGBT protections. Um, It's called an anti-discrimination law. But what it also does is it expands the definition of sex to include this like very nebulous concept of pregnancy choices um, that would certainly loop in abortion. There's a reason that Planned Parenthood and NARAL are throwing a lot of money behind this bill um, and would definitely kind of take us back to that post row, like wipe the slate clean. The intent is that this would be a federal law that uh, removes a lot of state laws, a lot of the protections that we've been able to pass in the states over the years um, and really kind of opens up uh, abortion on demand without delay or at minimum forces us to go back through the courts and fight for those protections like we had to do in the 70s, 80s, 90s and and are continuing to do today. Yeah, and I want to make clear too that um, it it defines public accommodations, sort of those sorts of services that are just available to anybody, you know, like buying a hamburger. Anybody can go buy a hamburger. They, They have to sell you a hamburger. So public accommodations of this law is, is, is including healthcare providers in a way that really, really coerces sincerely health beliefs of conscience. And one of the 
the things that um, the Catholic Conference finds really troubling, I know the US, USCCB uh, National Bishops Conference does too, is that this, this Equality Act, uh, so-called, would explicitly strip out the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, you know, which is this kind of um, 30-year longstanding federal statute that protects religious liberty um, for people of faith. Um, so for f- folks that, you know, I would encourage folks reach out to our state senators, um, or, um, I, I should say our DC delegation, Senator Thune and Senator Rounds, and just let them know you're really concerned about this. Um, you can reach out to Representative Johnson's office too. But uh, yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad that you mentioned it, uh, Katie. Yeah, let's, and one of the big things I think, sorry, just one last please, thing on this please. is that um, the big problem with public accommodations is it establishes this, if you do something for anything, you have to do it for everything sort of mentality. So, um, you know, for a Catholic hospital, maybe they do DNC as part of miscarriage management. Suddenly this would open them, them up that they need to be doing DNC for abortion. These could not be more different. So forcing, um, you know, religious healthcare providers to say, well, we can't do miscarriage management anymore because we can't open ourselves up to having to do abortions. Like that's outrageous. All that's going to do is leave worse healthcare options for everyone. Right. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's a very troubling, uh, act. So, um, listeners to this program can certainly stay tuned for, for more updates, um, on, on this piece of legislation. Katie, we've got about 10 minutes left and I do want to spend some time on, on state level uh, legislation. Um, I want to, maybe this is a good, good time to just tell listeners, um, where they can find your website. I think it's aul.org. And one of the things that, that you guys have up on your website, you publish it every year, is kind of a handbook called Defending Life. It is a really, really nice handbook. I've, I've found it very useful in my work uh, with the state legislature. Um, but you kinda, it's kind of like, a, I don't want call to call it a scorecard exactly, but it's like a, kind of an update, a roundup of where all the different states are at with their pro-life laws. It gives some kind of suggestions. Um, and I noticed this year, page four, kind of towards the front of the booklet, there are public figures that have given praise for your organization, Americans United for Life. And uh, I, I had to have a little South Dakota pride here. I noticed Governor Christy Noem right at the top yes. of page four. That was, that was a nice little blurb there, um, giving, giving AUL some praise. So Yeah, we're so glad to be um, partnering with her in her office. And I know that she has said that she wants to be seen as the most pro-life governor, and we're happy to work with y'all to make that happen. Absolutely. I will, uh, I will t- take that bell and ring it every day. Um, <laughs> very proud to have a, a very uh, strong pro-life governor in the state. You know, in our time remaining, I guess we could talk about a lot of different things at the state level, but I want to make sure we're giving due time to House Bill 1247. This is a bill that um, it gives really strong conscience protections to healthcare workers. It made it out of uh, the House State Affairs Committee yesterday by a vote of eight to five, which was good. We would have preferred it be a little bit stronger, to be honest. Um, it'll be up on the floor of the House of Representatives tomorrow afternoon. So if you're tuning in uh, Tuesday night, we're talking about Wednesday afternoon, February 24th, um, really need people to reach out to the representatives and express strong support for this bill. But Katie, I'm wondering if you could just share a few words from Americans United for Life's perspective. Why is this state-based conscience protection bill so important? So we really like this bill for a couple of reasons. Um, South Dakota already has 
conscience rules on the books, but this bill strengthens them. Uh, one of the ways it does that is it expands uh, the number of healthcare providers who are covered. It makes sure that pharmacists are covered. It makes sure that assistants are covered so that there's no question because historically some states have passed laws where it's like doctor, nurse, that's it. So yep. this broadly covers healthcare professionals uh, yes. wherever they operate. It yes. also makes it clear um, what constitutes retaliation. So it says you can't be retaliated against in your work uh, for exercising your conscience rights. Yeah. And it really lists out a lot of the different things that includes. And so we see this as something where it gives clarity to employees and employers uh, so that they can solve these problems themselves. They can see what the law expects of them. They can see what the outer bounds of this are. And, and they can make sure not to violate it because often when we get into these situations, it's something where the employer says, well, we didn't think it was that bad. And the employee says, I didn't know what my rights were. And yeah. so this law really clarifies that. Yeah. Um, the third thing it does is it adds a private right of action, which means yes. that you can sue for yourself. Right. Um, we know, you know, litigation, everyone's kind of familiar with, oh, I'll see you in court. Um, but in healthcare conscience in most states, it's not that simple. Yeah. Um, a lot of states don't have a right of action, which means you can't sue on your own behalf. You have to file a claim with the Federal Health and Human Services Department in Washington, yeah. and they have to file on your behalf. Right. So even under administration like the Trump administration, where they're very, very like friendly to conscience claims, and this is something that they really prioritized, you're still having to like wait for Washington bureaucracy to get to your case, to have the bandwidth to take care of it. And, and you can't exercise your own rights in state court. And so yeah. this will allow people to do that, which I think we, it's something that at AUL, we are encouraging lawmakers in every single state to do. Yeah, it's, I, I think that is one of the most compelling points about this bill. You mentioned kind of having a federal um, remedy that flows through the Health and Human Services Department. In many ways, this bill simply mirrors obligations that are currently there in federal law for healthcare employers, um, federal kind of consolidated in a, in a federal regulation promulgated by the Trump administration in 2019. But as you mentioned, Katie, um, the exercise of, of rights under those flows directly through what might be Xavier Becerra's office, you know, flow directly through your rights to conscience, which our Catholic faith teaches are fundamental human rights. That's, that's how uh, John Paul II describes them in Evangelium Vitae, this great pro-life encyclical that was promulgated in March, this month in 1995. Fundamental human rights. Should a fundamental human right depend upon, you know, a political appointee, uh, in Washington, that's you know one of the, the South Dakota Catholic Conference's core uh, core arguments is that South Dakotans need remedies at home. You know where there's where is there where there's no robust remedy, there's no robust right. So, are you seeing um, are you seeing movement on bills like this in other places? Uh, are other states do you do you expect are going to take up state based conscience protections uh, in the months and years ahead? Yeah, we've seen bills like this introduced in a couple of other states, and I think it's something where 
Um, you know, for the last couple of years, pro-lifers have felt pretty good that the federal government was on their side. Um, when the White House flips, you start looking at some of these things and saying, if I can't count on them, what, what do we need in our state law? And so we are seeing this in other states. I'm going to be testifying in another state on a similar conscience bill uh, later this week, actually. Yeah. So um, it's something that, you know, we are definitely prioritizing and encouraging lawmakers to take a look because you can look at your own state law and say, hey, we've got something here, but is it enforceable? Can you exercise your own rights? And, and is it covering everyone who needs to be covered? The more the government gets involved in healthcare um, and nitpicks in those places, the more people need to be protected because there will be more uh, potential for violations. Yeah, that's right. I, you know, and you kind of mentioned South Dakota does have some uh, rather basic protections right now. And just to kind of hammer that, that they, they're, I wouldn't even call them basic. I would say they're insufficient is maybe a better way to even describe them. Um, dating back to 1977, late 70s, a lot has happened in the world since 1977. And they, they kind of spell out some really rudimentary um, protections. But at the same time, there's nothing spelled out like what the remedy is. So there's no right of action, as you said, for somebody to like actually get relief. It doesn't really make clear like what their rights and responsibilities might be. Um, and they're, they're really just, uh, I, don't, I hate to call them token or just like in name only because they're on statute. But I, I just yesterday was um, corresponding with somebody that works in our state judicial system who uh, has kind of a look at all the data on, on various judicial cases. And my question was, you know, has anybody ever exercised their rights under these statutes in the state of South Dakota? And the answer is no, never. They've never come up, which just to me says like, okay, they're, they're insufficient. Um, you know, and you'd like to think that, well, maybe there's a, that's because they're a helpful deterrent. As came out in committee testimony, though, is like, no, it's actually, there are some cases here where, where people's consciences are being, um, are being coerced uh, in ways that, that isn't just. Well, and I know one of the things we heard yesterday, too, was um, doctors who were changing the scope of their practice or felt like, you know, it's only a matter of time before someone gets upset and I get canceled, um, feeling mm. like, you know, the law would not protect them. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, some of the arguments um, opposing the bill, too, you know, I hate to call them fear-mongering because you, you always want to take your opponent's arguments in good faith. But, you know, there was there were concerns that were raised that, oh, my goodness, now people, now these our healthcare organizations are going to have to hire so many extra workers um, to provide for all the conscience exemptions that people are going to have, and, and they're going to have to. It's like, well, I, I don't think that's the case. You know, these protections are already in, in federal, federal law and regulation to a certain extent. Their obligations you already have. We're just putting a remedy in law for people to actually be able to exercise them in a meaningful way. Um, what do you think of that that objection? Any other objections that, that you want to touch on in, in our last thirty seconds here? Well, we hear that kind of thing all the time. You know, um, only fourteen percent of OBGYNs do abortion, and we hear that quote stated uh, as a reason to loosen it up to say it doesn't have to mm. be an OBGYN, it doesn't even have to be a doctor, and it's like. If nine out of 10 dentists tell you you should get this toothpaste, that might be convincing. If nine out of 10 tell you not to do something, you might want to pay attention to that too. You know, yeah. the fact that the vast majority of physicians and even the vast majority of OB-GYNs aren't comfortable participating in abortion, they don't want anything to do with it, 
isn't a reason to loosen up abortion laws. You know, it's not a pluralistic society. It's it's forcing people to do something that they feel so strongly about that they would potentially change their employment to avoid it. Well, very well put. And we're going to end there. Um, listeners, if, if you uh, find this compelling, I really want you to reach out to your representatives. They've got to vote tomorrow and they need to hear from you. Your voices really matter. Uh, Katie, it was, a, it was a pleasure to talk. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks. Talk to you soon. And dear listeners, we'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in.